truth through camp and comedy, like that's that's my ultimate. That's what I always am trying to achieve. Hello there, and welcome to This Is My Family, a podcast about building a life with the people you love. I'm your host, Tyler Green, and I'm so glad that you're here. I'm raising a baby with my husband in California, and as my family grows, I wanted to create a space for honest, unfiltered conversations about how we make our families and how our families make us. In each episode, I talk to someone who can inspire us to think about family in new, bigger, and more inclusive ways. Some are people that I've known for years and that I just really need you to know. Others are creators I've never met whose work is important to me. This week, we're talking to one of those creators, Ben Putnam, better known by their drag queen stage name, Ben de la Creme. Hi, everybody. It's me, Ben de la Creme. <laughs> I love stories from drag queens. If you missed our season one episode with Latrice Royale, go check it out. For me, drag queens are the perfect example of the power of chosen families, of living your truth loudly, and of not being afraid of complex identities. Plus, they make me laugh and cry, my two favorite things. Starring on the reality competition show RuPaul's Drag Race made Ben de la Creme famous around the world. But before Ben became Ben de la Creme, de la for short, he was a queer kid growing up in Connecticut. When Ben was little, his mom was the person who would always make space for him to be who he was. She was his safe space. Ben says when he was around seven years old, his parents clocked him as gay. So they knew this big thing about him before he had any way to even understand it. And his mom was prepared to handle it really gracefully when they watched the movie Labyrinth together. And Ben had some big feelings about David Bowie. We watched Labyrinth together on a VHS on our couch, and it was like nighttime, and we were alone, just the two of us in our living room. And David Bowie in that film gave me so many confusing feelings. And I was probably, I don't know, eight at this, nine? I don't know. Yeah. And just seeing that character, I mean, obviously he was like gorgeous and the tights are infamous, but there was just something about his like queerness and his gender presentation and his makeup and all these things that I just felt this huge amount of feelings that I didn't know what they were or what to do with them. And as soon as the film ended and the credits rolled, I just burst into tears and I could not stop crying. And my mom was just like with me and trying to console me and kind of asking me what's wrong, but gently. And I finally just said, is it okay to think a boy is pretty? And she just hugged me and said, yeah. Mm. And it was a really small moment, but it was the first time that I ever remember without even realizing it openly acknowledging my queerness and my mom really just at the time I couldn't even appreciate how much that must have taken how much sort of mental preparation it must have taken and I feel like yeah. I mean it's hard for me not to feel like she kind of knew that that would be a response of mine 
you know, and I don't know whether that's true or just sort of a, a story in my head, but her sort of preparedness to deal with that so gracefully and with such ease, mm-hmm. to me, tells a story of how much she considered making the world an okay place for her very awkward queer son. Yeah. So it's clear that you and your mom were really close. But then when you were 13, she died of cancer, right? She was diagnosed before I was born. So I grew up with her sort of constantly going through chemo. She was like, you know, cycles of her being bald. It was very normal to me. And she would like go to the hospital for long stretches of time. Then she'd come back and her hair would grow back and she'd be fine. So the actual experience of having a mom with cancer was a lifelong experience, which sort of meant that when she passed, I was actually more unprepared for it than one would think because it was so normalized Mm -hmm. to me. It never occurred to me that her going to the hospital for a big chunk of time, becoming super weak, all of this stuff was was not the norm. Mm. Yeah. And no one had prepared me. No one had told me this is it. Mm-hmm. And I was going to school, you know, normally my dad sat me down and told me that my mom was probably not going to make it right before sending me off to school. <laughs> and then I went to school. My math teacher seemed to know more than I did because I started crying in class and she sort of like immediately pulled me into the hallway and was hugging me really big. You know, there's this thing, I think, you know, when kids are going through grief and mourning, I think adults have a real tendency to kind of smother them out of an attempt at love, not leave a lot of room for their feelings. And my grandparents were staying with us, kind of helping take care of things. And my dad sat down and told me she was gone and was just sobbing and beside himself. And which, of course, is understandable. But as a kid, you know, it was like there wasn't much room for my experience in that. And then my grandparents immediately came into the room and like smother hugged me. Mm-hmm. Now, I was not physically affectionate with my grandparents. And the whole thing was just like I was in an insane state of shock as a small kid and also you know, without understanding what I was feeling. But it actually, honestly, only took a few months till I really put together how I was feeling, which is that there was just no space for me or my experience. Mm. And it was kind of being smothered out. And that, I honestly think, changed my relationship to my blood family forever. Mm. I kind of had a sense of sort of resentment and not closeness. And it was like an immediate turn in terms of how my mother always made me feel that there was space for me. And suddenly there was not. And my family didn't know how to do that. And there was no one in my family who did know how to do that. Now, I had a great amount of anger for many, many years. I, in retrospect, honor all of my feelings and can understand their perspective in a different way where I don't think anyone was like bad or doing anything wrong. They were doing the best they could with the tools they had, but it it did affect my, I, I mean, it still affects my relationship with my family. I've never felt close to them since. Despite this distance, Ben says his dad tried to be supportive and make the world a little easier for his, as Ben calls himself during this time, quote, very awkward queer son, end quote. One of the best things my dad ever did for me was he sent me to a boarding school for the arts for my last two years of high school. And I maintain to this day that I think it saved my life. Mm. You know, I don't know that it would have made it through my experience at my public high school. And I think my dad just knew that. And he was like, you know, he was a public school teacher. It wasn't necessarily that we had, you know, the means. It wasn't an easy decision. But he... 
I think he knew how much it would change my life. And it, it did because I suddenly was surrounded by other queer kids yeah. and I was surrounded by people who appreciated the things about me that had sort of been disdained in my past school. You know, my creativity, my sort of exuberance, my flamboyance. So at that point, I kind of started doing drag at school events and people loved it, right? Suddenly it was like, people thought it was so cool. I started doing drag so young. Like I really started doing drag, you know, in that house in Connecticut, stealing makeup from the drugstore, squirreling myself away in the bathroom, putting on full faces of makeup, washing it off and leaving the bathroom. I mean, it was like I was practicing drag in secret by myself for many years. I honestly truly feel like I was a drag queen who figured out what I was later when I found drag. You know, when I first saw other drag queens it was not like oh i want to be that it was like oh there's a container for who i am so you've told us about your mom and dad and i'm wondering now a little bit about the rest of the family that you grew up with I come from this sort of New England family that's like anyone who's kind of familiar with the sort of waspy stereotypes of like everyone, you know, could trace their lineage back to like name every ancestor going back to the Mayflower. And there was this big sort of, you know, like a lot of pride in that. And I just did not get it, you know. So, I mean, my most vivid memories are of the holidays because that's when my family really got together. And I mean, this is how extreme this version of the family is. We lived in this big old farmhouse that it belonged to my grandparents and before that belonged to my great grandparents and right so we were like the central hub so everyone came to our house for Christmas and it was like all of these presents it was like super idyllic it was like you know New England in the winter like too many presents I came to see I hate presents now because present right presents are like future future collateral right like presents in my family were like we gave you this many presents oh, like now you owe us I'm a only laughing because it's true and I, I have yeah. the experience, same similar experience there's a line in the holiday show that we just put out that Dela talks about her upbringing in Connecticut. She says that she uh, received stacks of blank thank you cards as gifts. <laughs> That's real. I did. That was every year. It was like the big guilt trip was like you didn't send thank you cards for your like 40 presents. So the, your last gift is a stack of thank you. It was always like a guilt trip. I mean, I remember one of the big shifts for me was the first year I did not go home for Christmas. And the way I did that was I started doing Christmas shows. So I had an excuse not to go home for Christmas. Mm. And that was kind of the beginning of me, I think, giving up this facade and just being like, I am not going to play a part in this. Everybody's just avoiding talking about politics. Everybody's avoiding like anything other than polite conversation. And I'm not going to play this game anymore. And it's what I needed to do for me. And it's honestly very much improved my life to let go of that sense of owing my family something. After the art high school, Ben went to college at the illustrious School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He started incorporating drag into as much of his work as he possibly could. While I was a really good student and I got, you know, sort of high accolades from professors, there was also a sort of ongoing narrative that this isn't really part of the art world, you know. And then on the other side of it, as soon as I turned 21, I started performing in nightclubs and doing amateur competitions. And there was this sense of family and community among the queens, but I didn't feel super like I belonged in it, you know? You know, so there were these kind of two environments that both fed part of me, but neither of one, like it hadn't clicked yet. I hadn't found that family unit yet. Right. 
And so it actually wasn't until a while later when I found a group called the Chicago Kings. Mm. The Chicago Kings were this sort of amazing group of mostly lesbian-identified women. There were a couple straight women. There were some trans guys in the troupe. And they were doing these drag king shows. Anybody who's not familiar, drag kinging is just the, the masculine version of drag queening. They were doing these amazing shows, and they were just, as soon as I saw them, something clicked, and I was like, oh my god, this is what's missing. They're political, and they're funny, and they're doing narratives, and it's messy, and it's, you know, it wasn't what I was seeing in the clubs at the time. The clubs I was working in were very sort of a style of serious drag, for lack of a, a better term, you know, yeah. um, sort of out of a, a pageant world, and I, I didn't quite feel right for me. So I had always felt like maybe there wasn't a place for me in the gay world. You know, this is before the days of drag race, before the days where drag was considered something that, you know, was celebrated. I mean, back then you had to do drag in spite of the fact that you would never have a career, you would never make any money, and nobody would ever date you, right? Like, those were the big things about being a drag queen. I mean, I didn't tell most people I was a drag queen. You certainly never tell anybody you try to go on a date with that you're a drag queen, you know? So so I joined the Kings as their one kind of queen in the troupe. And those became sort of the people that I think started to define me as an adult queer person. I had identified as gay up until then, and I started to become sort of more politically aware, aware of other people's identities. I mean, before that, I think I'd been in real danger of becoming one of those sort of toxic gays, sort of gynophobic kind of, you know, all of those those things. Mm -hmm. And this shifted me, and it really got me thinking in different ways, and I started to feel a sense of community I'd never felt before. And a lot of those people that I met in that world, I started to become a big part of the burlesque world as well, are still some of my closest friends. And that was sort of what taught me how to start collecting queer family, you know? So being introduced to that world of like open-hearted people who were really cultivating community, I think gave me the tools to move forward and get to a place where I like to think that now I really like to, to foster that, to create that sense of community. Yeah. I want to shift gears now just a little bit and talk about how you build community, your approach to building community. And I think out of all the queens, most of the queens, you lead very unapologetically with kindness. And I would love to just hear you talk about how your approach to making the art that you make has changed over the years. You know, another sort of key moment in my development as a performer and a human was also in Chicago. Again, as I said, I'd sort of not felt that there was a real place for me in the sort of larger gay community, the sort of gay club scene. And a lot of that was, you know, I mean, I think like so many queer people who grew up kind of being told that most things about them are wrong. Mm. Certainly my experience was being in a lot of gay spaces where I think there were a lot of people who were hurt. I think there were a lot of people who had been told they were wrong and that results in a kind of a thing that I saw manifesting in gay space a lot where like people weren't particularly kind to each other. Right. It was competitive. There's a lot of sort of 
cattiness and bitchiness, which is not to be confused with the sort of playful shade that can happen in that scene, but but a lot of genuine just sort of, you know, making people feel like outsiders. And I think that's a real thing where when we have pain, we've been made to feel that way, we, we pay it forward. We continue those patterns. And I was guilty of that as well. I was really, I was very much like that as a, as a young gay man. And... I had this character, my drag character at the time, her name was Tina Angst, and she was like super like riot girl, punk rock, just like angry. And so much of what I did on stage was performance that was just like kind of about how out of place I felt, how mad I was, you know. And I mean, it wasn't like overtly about that, but that energy came from there, Mm -hmm. you know, came from, ugh, I still don't feel a place for myself. And at one point, there was a drag queen that still is a drag queen in Chicago uh, by the name of Miss Fousey. And she was, you know, I mean, I say an older gentleman. I mean, I was 21, 22 at the time. My guess is she was not that much older, but you just (laughs) think everyone's older, right? Right. But she was older than the community I'm talking about. And she would come into these club spaces in just like a bright, colorful muumuu. Like her wig was just basically a big ostrich feather hat. And she... (laughs) carried candy around and of course this was before we were all afraid that we were going to be drugged at every moment (laughs) but she would like carry around candy and she would go around and she just smiled at everyone she called everyone pineapple hello pineapple how are you tonight pineapple and she'd give them a piece of candy Mm -hmm. and she'd go around and she'd talk to the whole bar and i saw that energy shift it was like suddenly every catty gay man who felt wounded and like they were lashing out melted. There was someone creating this space for them, giving them really a maternal sense of love. And that's when I realized that the way that you shape the community, the world around you, the things that feel negative is not to get angry about them. It's to provide that sense of nurture. It's to counteract them Mm. with a very different intention. And that's when I shifted my drag. And now I do lead my drag with a sense of kindness, a sense of wanting to provide something for people, um, wanting to create community and a sense of hope and love for people who have maybe not gotten enough of that in their experience. And so... That's when I kind of set out down that path. And it was something I'd figured out how to do by surrounding myself more with communities who were also attempting that, you know. And as I said, you know, it was the Chicago Kings and then eventually, by extension, the burlesque community that I entered through some of the people I met there that really did have a huge sense of kindness and openness and support and generosity and you know I think when you sort of set out to make your life more about that your eyes are open to finding those Mm. people you know it's what you're looking for Mm. and it's what you're trying to put out there right and that's what allows you into those communities and so I that was my first taste of that coming up how does a drag queen find someone to settle down with We'll hear how Ben met his fiancée. Please subscribe to This Is My Family wherever you're listening. And make sure to check out another episode from season one with an iconic queen, Latrice Royale.
Ben moved to Seattle in 2006 and joined the thriving cabaret scene there. There were comedians, burlesque dancers, and drag queens aplenty. But despite having an abundance of talent, Ben was actually having a difficult time finding the kinds of collaborators he was looking for. Until fate brought into his life a queen named Jinx Monsoon. There were no drag queens doing what I was doing in Seattle. You know, there were a lot of community members doing a lot of cool things, but there wasn't like a drag queen doing that. Mm -hmm. And I started hearing whisperings of this queen and just like, not even that much, but something made me curious. And I went to see her and her musical performance partner, Major Scales, who is now a very close member of my chosen family. I went to see them perform and they were performing in a Starbucks for free at four o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, Jinx, yeah, I mean, it was like, and again, this is before drag was anything that was going to make you popular, cool, rich, or famous. This was, I saw her and I was like, that is a real queen. Like, that is a queen who needs this. You know, and that's something I relate to strongly. Drag is a part of me. It is not something I do for any reason other than it's a part of me. And if and when drag becomes horribly unpopular again, I will still be doing it. You know, even if I have to, like, pick up a job as a barista or whatever to support myself. But Jinx, she just blew me away. She and Major just blew me away. And I turned to my friend who I'd seen the show with and I was like, well, I have to cast her now because if we don't start cultivating a friendship, we're going to be enemies. It was just (laughs) like, it's too small a town. And so I cast her in my Christmas show Mm. that year. Uh, Her and Major. I cast them as a Dickensian waifs. Jinx likes to joke about that because she's like, yeah, she cast me in her show and she covered me in soot. (laughs) And that's where it started. And Jinx and I have known each other, you know, since then. It's been a decade at this point. And... Our relationship has taken many forms, and it's like it started as mutual respect, and it started as like, well, we want to work with each other because the other one's super talented. And we also liked each other, but there was definitely a sense of sort of like, all right, you're the other Mm -hmm. one, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, what is this going to mean for us? And there was Mm -hmm. a sense of competition for many years that we were able to acknowledge, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that declawed it a bit because we were able to sort of say you drive me to want to do better work you know we would work together off and on but we largely did our own work separately I mean now it's like getting into drag on a day off is like why would I go into the office on a Sunday but (laughs) but at the time it was like you know young and fresh and Jinx and I would just like she was my buddy we'd get into full drag and we'd go out and we'd just get like wasted and then all the bars would love us so we'd get to stay till 4am you know we just had so much fun in that regard so we had these kind of multiple layers of our relationship But we just kept working together. It was like even, you know, after Drag Race and as the world expanded, I think we realized even more how much we had in common and how much we were really looking to do similar things with our performance. And so it really led us back to working together a lot. And I think once we sort of both had that that experience of success on our own in a much larger way, Mm. it took away that element of kind of healthy competition. And it it made us able to be more more of a team. And so we continued to work together in various regards, and it just... I don't know. I mean, that's how I've collected so much of my queer family, is just working together over the years. 
Another central figure in Ben's life is his now fiancé Gus, who he first met just as Drag Race was hitting the mainstream and becoming super popular. So Gus and I met almost six years ago now. It was post-season six, pre-All-Stars Drag Race, and I was traveling a ton, and dating was really hard. I'd been single for quite a few years and sort of didn't know... I was like, how do you do this? Like, you can't naturally bump into somebody at the grocery store when you're gamus, right? When you're, yeah. that's shorthand for gay fans. And <laughs> Thank you. Like, straight people didn't know who I was, but like, I could not meet a gay person who didn't know who I was. And that makes dating very hard, mm-hmm. right? So Gus and I actually met on Scruff, and he and I talked for a really long time. Gus was very smart. He made me laugh. He was politically minded. He also had never seen Drag Race and didn't know my work. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing. (laughs) So the first time that I met Gus really was two days before our first date. He came to see a show. The timing just worked out, but I thought it was sort of important. He has to like what I do or that's not going to work, you know. Mm -hmm. It was a 4th of July show that sort of, in the scheme of all my shows, is sort of sparkly, like stars and stripes, spangly marching bands, all the rest of it, but actually goes down a path of being about like slavery and genocide and it was a show I was very proud of and there's always sort of a 50-50 mix of people walking up to you and saying like oh my god that was really smart and meant a lot or like you're so pretty and Gus fell into the first category and that was like okay yeah he came up to me and he said this show really expressed a lot of the complicated feelings that I feel about the country and I was like okay this person is like smart (laughs) and political and they feel that way you know Mm -hmm. Anyway, so we we met on our first date two days later. He showed up and was very handsome. You know, we met in a, a park just to, like, chat because I'd learned my lesson about doing, like, dinner or whatever because there was no escape. And it just turned into, like, ice cream and then drinks and then dinner. It's sort of out of order, but that felt right from the beginning. It's almost six years later. We've started building a life together in a way. Well, we've built a life together in a way that I <laughs> yeah. I never could have really imagined he inspires me a lot he challenges me a lot so we moved to seattle or moved to la march 1st quarantine started march 14th and we have barely left the house since it was actually gus's idea that dela and jinx collaborate on a christmas show I wanted to ask Ben about this, and because I love Christmas so much, I also just wanted to know more about his feelings on the holiday, and also the shows that have led to his big Hulu special. For me, Christmas was a time where it was, there was joy. It was real joy. It wasn't fabricated, but it was sort of, in a way, in hindsight, felt a little bit like a performance, because the rest of the time we were all arguing and there's sort of this performative thing about Christmas. And so I just want to like throw that into your response to this question, which is like, you have a Hulu show, which I want to hear about. And like, I'm obsessed with Christmas. And yeah, so sort of just walk us through the journey of that happening during the pandemic. Yeah. I would say that when I was very young, kind of single digits, Christmas felt amazing to me. You know, it was beautiful and and joyous and all that magic of being a very young person. But it pretty quickly shifted and became like my least favorite time of year around my 
early adolescence because it was so performative. I mean, it was just, I was like, who are these people kidding? Even if I didn't have the words for it at the time, I was just like, I don't feel close to any of these people. And, you know, in retrospect, I was probably like 16 or something the first time I really noticed like, oh, they don't really like each other that much either, you know? And we're all just kind of showing up and, and performing this Christmas special, really, you know, this Hallmark Christmas. And I think it acutely raised my awareness of the messaging that we're given around the holidays every year, which, you know, we are inundated with images and words related to homecoming and spending time with the families, home for the holidays, all of this stuff. This Norman Rockwell Coca-Cola Christmas is being packaged to us and who is living up to it? I mean, maybe some people, but my family sure wasn't. But it was the it was the bar. It was the it was the standard that we were all trying to force. And how does that serve us? I mean, how does that imagery out in the world that so few people actually are able to live up to? How, that doesn't serve the majority of people, you know? So from the get-go, when I started creating Christmas content all those years ago, it was about, like, okay, let's redefine family. Let's reclaim the idea of coming home. Like, this theater is home tonight. So Christmas shows really were my bread and butter for the last however many years that is. And those people that I performed with really were my my closest sense of family. And... And it was actually my partner, Gus, who was like, you know, Jinx and you, you have this chemistry on stage that people are just so in love with. Why don't you two do a Christmas show? And I was like, oh, no, I don't know. That sounds hard. Like, that sounds, <laughs> you know, I was like, I, it's never going to work, whatever. And I started talking to Jinx about it. And we were like, well, we don't know. We've never done a show, just the two of us. We've never written a show that's you and I doing a scripted show. You know, we were like, let's try it. Let's do it as a tour. Let's see if anybody wants to come. Let's see if it's any good. We don't know. And we toured the States with it. And I mean, it sold out almost immediately. And the audiences just went insane. And it felt good. And then, you know, the following year, we were able to book larger venues. We did the UK as well did like all of December and some of November and then this what year is it oh uh, the following year 2020 <laughs> right the year we all hate 2020 that was the year that we were like really gonna blow this thing up and it was just gonna be like huge exponentially bigger mm-hmm. and then you know we're like oh, okay this pandemic maybe well it will probably be fine by Christmas oh maybe not well you know and then it became clear sort of mid-summer that touring was not an option nothing has stopped me over these decade plus from making these shows, from creating the sense of community around the holidays. And that's been for the audience. And it's also been for me. That is my tradition. That is how I spend my Christmas. It's what I love about Christmas. It's how I've learned to love Christmas. And I was like, I don't know what we're going to do, but we have to do something because I cannot, I can't lose this. And we cannot not bring this to the people who rely on it every year, you know? So then it was like, all right, well, maybe we're going to make a film. And we started talking about that in June. And let me just tell you, 
I had never directed or produced or, <laughs> or written a film for that matter. And I talked to a bunch of filmmaker friends of mine and I was sort of like, can this be done? And they were like, no, but you should probably do it. <laughs> you know, because all of them just know what an obsessive type A art maker I am. We created it in COVID. There was a lot of quarantining, a lot of testing, a lot of safety measures. I'm delighted to say that nobody got sick. We had a lot that we were up against, but I'm so proud of the thing we created because I think we did do what we set out to do. I think we did bring the message to people that we love to bring it to every year, but also we were able to expand it to an even bigger audience. Yeah. And the response was so overwhelmingly good. And there were a lot of people who were like, oh, it was hilarious. I loved it. It was like, it, you know, it was all these things. But what really made me happy was how many people said that it spoke to them and that the message meant something to them and that they were like surprised the message was in there and they were like so happy it was and I had a lot of people say like this really encompasses how I feel about the holidays and that truth through camp and comedy like that's that's my ultimate. That's what I always am trying to achieve. Like, I want to be funny constantly. I want to make you laugh constantly. I want all these things. And I also want it to be a path of breadcrumbs that leads you somewhere more complicated and, and, and deeper. Yeah. Drag Race revolutionized more than Ben's personal and professional life. Drag itself went from being pretty niche to incredibly popular almost overnight. And that changed the audience for drag shows on every level. My relationship with what community means now with my audience has shifted so much over the years. It started with those small audiences that were so appreciative and hungry. And as I started to build more shows, those audiences expanded, but the feeling and the demographics did not necessarily. And then Drag Race really began to change the landscape. Mm. By the time I would say like season four, five rolled around and then six, which is when I went on, it really started to shift who was paying attention to drag and who was like honoring drag. And I will admit openly that when we started getting bigger influxes of straight people at our shows, it was hard for me. Yeah. I think I felt like we were suddenly being commodified in a way where the relationship to the mission statement was not there. And I did see that shift very quickly. I saw the shift from queer audiences who came there to like listen, be together, be part of something, to seeing an influx of straight women who were just getting wasted. And like now I I love like a buck and twirl like drag variety show. Like that's great. But that is not what I was doing. We were putting on plays yeah. and we would just have people screaming through our dialogue it was so disheartening and so I kind of resented it for a while and that was a tough shift for me but then what I realized was that yes there are these people that I was talking about that are not always my favorite audience members but there are so many more people right who maybe don't have my lived experience. You know, of course there are a lot more queer people coming out now because just visibility for their reach, right? So that's great to be able to connect with, with more people in that way. But also it's expanded my view of who is part of my community past specifically the queer experience and into the experience that so many more people have most of us have the shared experience of isolation, feeling like something's wrong with us, feeling, I mean, unfortunately, 
There are very few people who escape the experience of being told that they're not enough, being told that they're not correct and there's not really a place for them if they're fully honest about who they are. That kind of touches everyone, you know? I mean, it's like as little patience as I have for the play of like the white cis male in our world these days, the reality is that this sort of like these stories people are told about how they have to manifest masculinity. I mean, it, it touches them too, yeah. you know? Within that, if somebody can attend one of my shows and somebody can hear the message, what I discovered is that it's much more universal than I thought. And that has expanded my world, and that's expanded my community. And now my community is like thousands more queer people than it was before, and it's also a lot of non-queer people. And I think what I was afraid of losing when that audience started to shift was that this is my space, this is for my people, this is my audience space, this is where we cultivate this feeling. And as it turns out, that has not been lost. It has only grown in terms of the people who can participate and be a part of that and my understanding of who I can feel connection with. Mm. Well, Bendel the Creme, thank you so <laughs> much. Like I said to Latrice, I'm sure you have many other things you could be doing right now. Well, I'll tell you, I'm not going anywhere, so... <laughs> When you said we had extra time, I was so grateful because I, I really like to give space and it's a luxury and I'm aware of that. So thank you so much for just being you. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful talking to you and I'm, I'm so glad we got to. Yay. On season three of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, when given the option of voting another queen off... Venda LaCreme shocked the world by instead voting for herself to leave the competition. She said she'd rather go home than eliminate her friends, the others who seemed to really want the prizes. Ben lives fully in that place of knowing what he needs and doesn't need. He was confident that Ben de la Creme didn't need a crown, $100,000, or more fame. She tweeted shortly thereafter, If you don't like the rules, make your own. We create our own beauty. We define our own success. And that's what I leave this conversation with. A true appreciation for someone who lives into their values without apology. Someone who leads with kindness and compassion and helps us all understand that kindness is actually different than obligation. And for this show, that resonates for so many people. Just because we're related doesn't mean we have to be a family. And just because we're not related doesn't mean we're not family. Thank you, Ben, so much for reminding us of that. Thanks to Ben de la Creme for joining us and sharing her story. Go to bendelacreme.com to find out about all the things she's up to. And be sure to watch the Jinx and Dela holiday special on Hulu. It's the holiday every day with Jinx and Dela. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TIMF Show. Our website is TIMFshow.com. The show is a production of TheStoryProducer.com, and it's made by me, Katie Claxon, Trisha Bobita, Jackie Ball, and B. Bosco. It is edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe. Our music is by Andrew Edwards. Social Current takes care of our social media and show administration. Find them at Social Current. That's social, C-U-R-R-A-N-T. And last but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Ziwujo. If you connected to this episode, would you do me a favor and please share it with a friend? This whole enterprise is all about amplifying the many ways to make a family. 
And we can't really do that without your help. Spread the Timf love. Send a text, an IG message, or add it to your mail Kimp newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tyler Green. And until next time, stay beautiful and messy. Is the podcast all done, Sam?